welcome to episode 224 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So on this episode, to preview a bit, we're going to be talking about what is heresy. And we've done a whole series on different heresies, especially Christological heresies. But today we're going to talk a little bit about more how to categorically define and pick out of a lineup heresy. So that way, yes. when you're on your Twitter feed or in your Facebook profile, I guess not your profile, but what is it called? The wall? feed yeah i guess your wall your feed i have no idea that's not hardly any anybody uses their actual face like their actual profile anymore it's very it, like it's all about groups and stuff now oh well good see i have no idea what i'm talking about what yeah no matter how you engage online you'll be able to pick out of a lineup the thing that is heresy that's our goal but of course before we get to all of that really really good stuff that's coming we've got to jump into some affirmations and denials so kick us off dealer's choice what have you got this week uh, why don't I start out with my affirmation? It's nice and short and sweet, which is not what I'm known for on uh, affirmations and denials. So we've talked in the past about how I love a good crockpot meal and uh, <laughs> how I'm, I'm, I'm getting used to like using the crockpot. And so I picked up a little device uh, called an immersion blender. Do you have one of these? No, but that is okay. fancy. So uh, that's a really fancy name for like a handheld blender. And basically, so today I'm making um, butternut squash soup. And so you start off with like cubed butternut squash and you cook it so it gets nice and soft. And then at the end of it, you're going to put heavy cream in and then use this blender to basically turn it into a soup rather than like chunks of butternut squash. And you can do this with a traditional blender, but then what you have to do is like scoop the the chunks into a regular blender and then put it back in the crock pot and it's just a mess. It makes it hard to like measure out the cream that you're using cuz you can't really mix the cream in the blender because you don't know how much squash is there and the ratio is important. So this is just a blender. It's like a cylinder blender and you just put it right in the crock pot and it just cuts and stirs and liquefies everything. So I actually haven't used ours yet, uh, but I have used them in the past, and I'm pretty stoked. I'm pretty excited about this squash soup. It's pretty. I know you love a good squash, so <laughs> I, I, when I name this this meal, I'm going to rename it, and it's going to be the Jesse Schwam butternut squash soup. Fair enough. I do love a good squash. I cannot lie, and it is a useful tool. We don't have one. I think this is the kind of thing that we always say when we get to that point in the process. Man, I wish it, we had something we could just stick yeah. into the pot, and it would just blend everything together so but you're you're like at the level now of like that's you know like chef style like now you've got like this amazing tool because i feel like that's the kind of thing that separates the beginners from those who are like i'm just going to take out whip out my immersion blender real quick and just process this i'm definitely still a beginner i'm a little surprised that your wife doesn't have one of these because she loves to cook she she does and she's a great and she's cook. very good at it yeah but we do that thing and by we I mean her because she's amazing does that thing where it's like you process or take everything out of the crock pot put it into the blender put it back in the crock pot oh. I know that she's maybe I should just get this as a gift for her actually maybe that's the conviction that's falling upon me now very maybe hard. it's more a gift for you <laughs> I mean that could be but I'm totally with you have you used it for anything else uh, I have in the past I used to make like you can make like milkshakes or smoothies yeah. It, it's nice because it doesn't, it doesn't, 
the only part of it that moves is the actual little blade, but because right. the way it's styled, it like spins the the liquid. So you can put it in like a regular glass and it's not going to like shake the glass too much. It'll just mix what's in there. So it's, I hear it's good for like making milkshakes or smoothies, or if you have like, you're trying to mix hot chocolate, you could use it for that. It, it's pretty sweet. I'm pretty it's excited It's a precision to use it. instrument. Again, you're Iron yes. Chef now. That's like the thing they whip out when they're making like some really like amazing emulsified sauce or gravy or something like that is it's always get out the immersion blender it, again it sounds cool like where else can you use the adjective immersion as part yeah. of a description of like your kitchen gadgets yeah i feel like if y- y- people don't know what this is they're imagining something much more impressive than it actually is <laughs> just look it up you're not going to be that impressed if you look it up on google it's it's like a stick with a spinner on the end of it that cuts stuff it's yeah it's like but I, i'm next... excited i'm excited about this squash soup that i'm making in your honor it's the next level of a frother. Yeah. If you've ever yeah, used one of those. Fair. Like this is the next level of I need to process something, but I don't really want to move it from the container it's in right now. Is there some way that I can blend it without having to actually put it in a blender? So it's yeah. it's useful. I feel like people who maybe haven't seen one of these are thinking we've given it too much attention already. But trust me, this is a really useful tool. If you can get one, it's pretty awesome for I think you'll find lots of uses for it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. What about you? What are you affirming this week? Another quick affirmation from me. I realize I have an, a reputation to uphold on this podcast and I haven't for quite some time recommended music. So I'm back with some music and I'm affirming with an album by a band called Slick Shoes. It's brand new, or at least it came out last year in 2020. But there's a couple of things about this. One, in my formative years, when I was much younger, I listened to a lot of punk rock, a lot a punk rock. And this is one of those bands, but here's the interesting thing. Slick Shoes, it's an American punk rock band. It's actually from California. Their name comes from, incidentally, the hit 1995 movie, 1985 movie, sorry, Whoa. The Goonies. Slick oh, Shoes is one of the character data's many gadgets. Do you remember that? I, I've never actually seen The Goonies. What? Wait. The wh- only thing I know about The Goonies is, hey, you guys. I don't what? even know what the context of that is. Okay, so <laughs> here's the thing. Usually I'm the one that hasn't seen any movies on this cast. I, know. I feel I like know. this is a kind of cult classic, and you're usually on point with the cult classics. Yeah, I, I just have never seen it. It's, I don't know. For a long time, I thought that The Goonies and the movie Stand By Me were the same movie. <laughs> so maybe that's why I never saw it, because I was like, I don't care about these kids walking on this train tracks. But uh, apparently they're very different Uh, movies. Very, very different movies. People are going to think this is scripted, but that's the best thing I've heard all day. (laughs) (laughs) I just knew it was a movie about kids on some sort of journey, and I assumed it was the movie with uh, the guy from Sliders and Will Wheaton. Or uh, not Will Wheaton. um, William Will Crusher. Oh, my gosh. That is is so good. You couldn't even make that stuff up. That is so good. Well, there's this character. His name is Data. And he has all these gadgets. And at one point in the movie, he's like, Slick Shoes, are you crazy? So they took their name from this basically like nice. one line in the movie. All that to say, this band hasn't released an album in 13 years, which is nice. incredible. And they just released it recently, recently. That's the combination of recently and released. I like a, it. A brand new album. It's called Rotation and Frequency. It is punk rock. But here's what I would say to everybody. 
I feel like I'm always defending my music choices, but <laughs> here's what I would say to everybody. This is like symphonic punk rock. It is like the embodiment of everything it should be. It's its best representation. There's no boredom in this. There's things in this album that I've never heard before in this genre. So they're probably, I'd say, like the epitome of what it means to do this kind of genre really well. So nice. I'm affirming with rotation and frequency by slick shoes their first album in 13 years it's the same actually lead vocalist some of the members have changed it's just as good as ever but actually better so if you've never listened to this nice. stuff before this is might be a nice little gateway walk through this door and check out this album nice i probably will not but i'm sure other people will that's fair. I totally understand that. It, so here's the thing about this. Unlike some of my other recommendations, this is all melodic music. So there's no yelling. There's okay. no screaming. It's punk rock, but I do feel like sometimes punk rock gets kind of like a bad reputation because it's associated with lots of things, including like political objectives and all this other stuff. This yeah. is really like the purest form of expression. It's Christian punk rock music. It's delightful. It's beautiful. It's really complicated. The guitar hooks are beautiful and complex. You, again, you won't get bored with this. So nice. if you've never listened to something and you're curious, like, what does this really sound like in probably its highest or most elevated form? I would submit to you, this is that example. So rotation and okay. frequency. Is, you've convinced me. I'll, yeah. I'll give it a shot. If I play it in my car, is it going to scream at me immediately and cause me almost to crash? No, that's uh, that's okay. what I'm saying. There's no screaming in this. It's all melodic. So it's, then it's I just, will give it a shot. Yeah, it's all melody, but it's fast paced. Like this would be great if you're working out or if, I don't know, you have to file a bunch of TPS reports. This is the kind of thing you'd want to listen to. It gives you all kinds of great energy. So this is music that I know I haven't recommended before, but I for some reason I grew up listening to punk rock. And that has been for me like the thing that the, the first domino to fall with all kinds of other genres. So I have this somewhat biased love for it because it takes me back to that time. But it's amazing that you'd have a band that you listen to when you're much younger and then 13 years pass and then they release a new album. It's not like a bunch of old dudes or old women like just putting together nostalgic you know, music stuff. It's, yeah. it's brand new. It's amazing. It's different. And yet it's you know how like people complain when they hear like a sophomoric or even a, a album beyond like that, where they complain that the band is not who they were and they push too far into the, who they're not. Yeah. This is like the beautiful combination. It's everything that you want to hear from them. And yet more that you didn't never could anticipate that they would do. So All it's, right. uh, I'm talking this up a lot, but I think it's worth it for people to give it a listen. So it's not like a DC talk reunion album where it's just like all these, <laughs> all these old songs from like the early mid nineties, except like now they have more synth. Right. No, you're That's right. That's not a real... I probably would you're buy right. that album, actually. That sounds like a pretty good Yeah, deal, I'm going to buy that album twice. I'm going to get it. If like, you're listening, Toby, Mac, and Michael <laughs> Tate. Michael Tate, since you and I are BFFs now, since we yes. met at the airport, uh, could you make that... I mean, I know you're with Newsboys now, but could you just could you just do me a favor and make that t updated like 2021 DC Talk album with synth? I don't know why synth is the thing I think characterizes 2021 but you heard it here first folks. Well, I think on the new Toby Malk album or sorry, the most recent one, this is out of my depth a little bit. I think it's called the elements Toby Mac. I, there is somewhat of a reunion. I think both of them are back on one of the tracks. I think it's actually credited as like DC talk is on that track. So if you're missing it a little bit, you should go try to find that it's where they're your friends though. So it's probably, I don't know if that's more special or less special. Cause you kind of like, psh, we hang out yeah, all the time. I mean, so. I still haven't got the trifecta. I still have yet to run into Toby Mac at a, a routine, non-music related place. So 
we'll have to see if that happens. And I see him, I'm gonna be like, you know, I'm, I'm I was talking to you, to our best friend, Michael Tate, <laughs> and he and I think that you should you should get the band back together. I'm telling you, wasn't it was it Kevin Max at a subway? Yeah, it was. It was yeah. the subway again, just hanging out in a hanging out in a van, eating his subway, and I was like, hey, I know you. This is the only kind of thing you can get from the Reformed Brotherhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're a, a unique value proposition. That's for wow. <laughs> you everything like that, don't we you? are finance guy. Yeah, everything we are is just uniquely encapsulated in that sentence. Yes, yeah, yeah. for sure. So let's do some denials. What's going on? So I don't want to get too far into this. I have a feeling uh, sometime in the future when there's more solid uh, facts and evidence that are public, we'll probably end up doing an episode on this. But I'm I'm denying fleeing church discipline. And so I, I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about. So flashback to, I think it was 2014, maybe 2015, uh, Mark Driscoll is charged by many people in his church uh, with um, leading in a domineering fashion and, and, and just all sorts of things that are unbecoming of a, of a pastor or an elder. And his elder board investigates and they indeed say, yes, Mark Driscoll is guilty of this. We would like to put him under discipline, which means he's not going to be preaching for a while. And we want to work on a plan to restore him to his office and to, to make sure that we're engaged in the work of the church of disciplining and correcting and restoring a believer. It was like a week and a half uh, before Mark Driscoll basically said, peace out, I'm not doing that, and resigned his position. Uh, and then less than a year later, he was uh, planting a church in Phoenix. So there are other similar situations that are going on in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church right now. Uh, many of you have probably heard of the uh, Geneva Commons. I've made some not so oblique and also some oblique references to that controversy in the past. And recently, uh, a teaching elder named Michael Spangler and a ruling elder named Shane Anderson uh, were brought up on charges. Uh, and and Michael Spangler pled guilty to one charge and then not guilty to another charge. The, the specifics are not super important. But one of the uh, outcomes of this trial that helped, happened at his presbytery was he was uh, he pled guilty to a charge of basically more or less undermining the presbytery's authority. He he and Shane had written a letter to uh, their congregation that that said some unflattering things and kind of disturbed and undercut the um, the role of the presbytery. I don't want to say authority because that's not quite the right word. So uh, as a result of pleading guilty to this, he uh, received what's called a two year definite suspension, which means he's suspended from doing anything related to the office of elder for a period of two years. And the latest, and this is why I'm, I'm being sort of tentative because this is not necessarily super well confirmed, although I don't think it's disputed anywhere. But uh, Michael Spangler is now uh, reportedly worshiping in a free church of uh, continuing church. He's no longer even involved in the OPC in terms of his weekly worship. Um, Shane Anderson has demitted office, which just means he resigned. Uh, and he is now in a CREC church. Uh, he's no longer even in the OPC. And so what, what appears to be happening, and I'm saying this, you can't see me with all my kind of like gesticulations here, but what appears to be happening is rather than stay put in the church where they swore, they swore vows as members to pr you know, promote and preserve the purity of the church and the, the peace of the church, rather than stay put and face the discipline that is coming to them for, for the things that, they, that one of them pled guilty to uh, and, and uh, was found guilty of another charge, Rather than stay put and face that, it appears that they are just kind of piecing out to another denomination. 
Um, and I know that there's been at least one instance of somebody who has been raising funds on behalf of Shane, uh, of Michael Spangler uh, to sort of pay him to do street evangelism or to, to provide for his financial needs because he's he's kind of no longer able to do uh, ministry in the established church that he was ordained in. So I don't want to go much further on the specifics, but here's here's the deal, folks. The the idea that you can just opt out of church discipline, there's a reason that church discipline is one of the marks of the church that that all of the branches of the Reformation recognized, is because the church exercising discipline is a core function of the church. Uh, every organization, whether it is a, you know the church or a business or some sort of academic society, has mechanisms to hold their members accountable to the commitments that members make. And without those things, then you might not, you might as well not have membership requirements. So the idea of like a church without discipline is, is sort of foreign to reality. And so when you opt out of church discipline, when you look at a situation where, where all of a sudden you're saying, yeah, I'm just not into that. I'm not going to do that. You really are opting out of the church because what you've done is you've established a situation where you no longer are interested in something that's a core core function of the church. And so here would be a parallel. If you as a Christian just decide, yeah, I'm not into that baptism thing. I'm really not into that Lord's Supper thing. I'm just not going to do that anymore. Um, then you, in a sense, are denying the validity of a core function or a core mark of the church, which basically means you're no longer participating in the church. So I don't want to go any more in depth than that because this is still very early on and, and maybe this is just a couple months or a couple weeks to sort of like put some distance between the events and what's going on. But at least so far, this appears to be what's going on. And it really is not cool. Um, you know, it's it's not any different than uh, Mark Driscoll doing this or Tulian Chavidian when he was, he was uh, removed from his office and his credentials were stripped of him when he committed adultery multiple times. Um, instead of submitting to that church, the church where he was assigned membership, uh, he, he just didn't ever go there. And so after a while they removed him from the membership roles. And it turns out that he was, he had moved to Texas and was worshiping somewhere else completely. And now he again is back in ministry. So it would not surprise me, uh, down the road if, if Michael Spangler, maybe not so much Shane, uh, Anderson, because he's not, he's not a teaching elder. He's not in formal ministry in that sense, but it wouldn't surprise me if Michael Spangler down the road, uh, was pursuing ordination and, and formal office-bearing ministry in other reformed-ish uh, contexts. Um, it would be a little bit hard for him in the Free Church continuing because there's some formal relations between the OPC and the Free Church. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if, if he ended up somewhere like Doug Wilson's denomination or the Evangel Presbytery, which is kind of another sort of semi-schismatic group that that rather than deal with the issues that they were faced with, they just kind of pieced out and, and started their own thing. Um, and it really, it's one of those things that we have to be really discerning as Christians, because when we support people who do this, we support uh, this stuff, then we also are participating in undermining the nature of the church. Um and that's just not a good thing. So I don't know that we need to belabor that point anymore, but I saw this online and it just really bothers me. It just really bugs me that Christians do this, especially Reformed Christians in Presbyterian contexts where you've already made a commitment to a certain structure and, and process-driven discipline. You've already committed to that. You've sworn oaths to that. You've, you've made vows um, to just sort of like peace out when it's no longer convenient really is, I think it's just an integrity issue. I think there's two things at play here. One is that we all are subject to this kind of thing. The propensity right. to want to, especially with the church, 
accept all of her benefits, but move away from all those things that would push against or apply to us in a way that would bring some kind of pain or discomfort. So that's the first thing. And the second is to, I would say, underemphasize the importance of things like discipline. Instead, we hold up high, like you said, other traditions, other parts of the church with respect to things like baptism or the Lord's Supper, but then somehow provide a lesser weight to something like discipline, even though we know and will quote frequently from the scripture saying, well, God is not a God of chaos, that he brings right. order, that he has boundaries around these things, that his boundaries are his love. When he says no, what he means is don't hurt yourself. And so that's for the protection of the person, his child, and also for his people whom he holds in high regard. So I think there's something in there that's a lesson for us all, but it does strike me as it's hard for us to assess it from the outside because right. I think we'd all be tempted to do the same thing, but it doesn't mean that that's the right thing to do. And we yeah. expect from our leaders and pastors that they would exemplify what it means to fall under discipline when they are legitimately brought under that discipline even if it's the hardest thing for them to imagine. Yeah. So nobody really wins here when somebody does that because we can become complicit, like you said, in basically undermining the work of God because the work of God is to bring order, especially right. in his church. This is where he wants it the most. So I agree with you. I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think people should think about the fact that there will be times when they will have to sort through how they choose to respond to these types of situations. And we shouldn't think that it will never happen to us or right. never happen in our own congregation. So we ought to be prepared. It's helpful to think about. Yeah. And just to be clear, I don't think that Michael Spangler is unsaved. I think I think I have no reason to believe that he, he doesn't love the Lord and, and isn't trying to do what he thinks is the right thing. Um, and I have no reason to think that he is somehow like he's not like a mustache twirling villain out there. Right. But but he has chosen at least right now. And maybe this is an, a perception that's not accurate. And hopefully he, he can prove this to be wrong. But he's chosen to circumvent the process which God's put in place. And here's here's the, the kicker on this. Although church discipline is hard, it's a blessing. Right. right. I, I actually was in a situation where I didn't face formal church discipline, um, but I was I was in a certain way sort of it was implied that maybe it would be better if I found a different congregation to worship in. And and that was really hard. But a couple of years later, when I had matured a little bit and had a chance to step back from the situation, I returned to that church and I asked to be allowed to come back because I felt like that was that was my home. Uh, and there was repentance and contrition and reconciliation that came about because of that. Because somebody in leadership said, you can't you can't continue to be a part of this body and act the way that you're acting. I, this, I mean, I was like a 19-year-old snot-nosed kid doing stupid stuff. But you can't continue to be a part of this, co this congregation and act the way you're acting. So you need to go somewhere else because we're not going to tolerate it. That, that was a wake-up call for me. And so even that, even the idea that church discipline is something to flee from represents in many ways, like a misunderstanding of the nature of the church and the nature of church discipline. So I don't want to belabor that. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that I have a reason to, to revisit this and to, to speak differently on it in the future, but at least right now, it very much seems like this is what's going on. And that's very disturbing to me. Well, no matter what, no matter what the outcome of this particular instance, I think the point you're bringing up is good. And that is that people need to assess where into what esteem they hold church discipline. It's not an ancillary activity. It's not on the right. side or the margin of what the church does. It's actually at the center with everything else that Jesus right. has established and that Paul manifested through his own ministry. It's just as important as anything else. But 
I think maybe because people often don't have experience with it, never seen it actually administered, that yeah. can sometimes seem like, well, this is just the thing that you don't want to have to do, but you might necessarily have to do because right. something happens. Something is always happening. And really, I think unless you're either intimately involved in some of the workings of your church or you yeah. know somebody in pastoral ministry explicitly, you have a better sense of that. But we should all kind of be wise to the fact that we're sinful human beings. And so often we need the kind of forceful pushback that comes from our leadership and that nobody is exempt from that. I think yeah. that's what we learn over and over again. In fact, the just the idea that we could be surprised that our leaders would be in this position is to show that we sometimes elevate them to a place, if only in our minds, where they're impervious to temptation and to sin and to shortcomings. And that's not the way that the Reformed tradition understands any single human being. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about you? What are you denying today? I think it's somewhat, it's definitely a lesser issue than what you're talking about, <laughs> but it's more in my realm. And so this week I'm denying against really bad trend investment advice that could prove potentially harmful to people. Uh -oh. And I, so does this have something to do with the craziness with GameStop? <laughs> it does. It's a veiled critique. And normally I don't bring this kind of stuff up, but it's somehow this has become common to everybody. Some of people become really aware of this and some are making decisions based on this trend information. And I know it has come into the really common zeitgeist when my wife will bring it up like totally unprovoked. <laughs> and so uh, there's this, if you're aware of anything that's happened, especially in the United States, but in, in U.S. capital markets. So GameStop has been a stock that's seen its price appreciate really substantially over the past couple of weeks. And for lots of reasons, which we won't get into. But here's what I'm saying is I'm a little bit worried that right now some are thinking that the best thing they can do is kind of ride this wave of that price appreciation with that stock without respect to financial first principles. And that's the thing that always makes me sad. I know this is a big deal because I've never had so many people that I know text me and ask questions like, what is a short squeeze? What is a gamma squeeze? What is delta hedging? How can I get in on that? This is how I know that like something that has been on the margin has somehow now been sucked into the mainstream and could be potentially harmful. So let me say a couple of things. The first is that, you know, this is a process. It's not complicated, but it's like an esoteric financial idea. This idea of short selling a stock that in the few places in the world, can you sell something that you do not actually own? Right. You can do that. And I think for good reason in financial markets. Uh, so people are taking or borrowing game stock. They're selling it for a high price and they're hoping that they'll be able to return it to the borrower at a lower price. This actually is the same thing as buying low, selling high, just in the reverse order. Right. And of course there has to be two sides of the party and the transaction. So all this villainizing of the person that's selling it short, I question that because there's somebody buying it. So is that person also equally the villain? It's complicated. Um, but beyond that, this shows to me a profound misunderstanding of first principles. So everybody that's saying like, well, there's so much wrong with short selling this stock. And I get it that most of that position is wrapped up in large hedge funds and that they're rep those hedge funds are representing, that's a specific type of investment that's representing people with generally a lot of money. So we're talking an average of people that are wealthy means. But here's the bottom line. What I'm kind of denying against is this profound misunderstanding that then is leading people who have uh, who, to invest money in ways that they're going to be at the ones holding the bag and lose a lot right. is 
when you go out, not you personally, but when a person goes out. I mean, I bought a lot of GameStop stock. Is that a good thing? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just like all of it, like all of my money is held up in GameStop right now. Yeah. I mean, again, it depends on what price you got it at, but obviously people that are jumping into it now, I'm just so fearful because it's it's already high and it's more than likely it's going to go down. But this idea of like trying to villainize, which I suppose is part of the denial, is like universally or by blanket statement, villainize activity. Here's the problem with that is people don't like this idea of saying, well, how is it possible that you can sell something that you do not own? And the first principle, one of the first principles of finance is that we do this all the time. So for instance, when somebody goes out and gets a car loan, here's what they're doing. They are getting money cash, which they do not own, and they are selling it short by selling the cash to acquire the vehicle. And they're hoping to replace the cash in the future, which they borrowed, at a lower price, which would be its purchasing power. So this actually is part and parcel of the financial world. I'm not saying it's either good or bad, but what I'm saying is there's a profound misunderstanding or ignorance on first principles. And I saw even Elon Musk tweeting this week saying, how is it possible that people can buy, again, sell something that they don't own? And I'm thinking, you have a ton of debt on all of your companies. (laughs) You're doing the exact same thing. But the only difference is it's just with a different asset. But my concern right now for people is that anybody kind of just getting caught up in this hype and saying, well... GameStop or AMC has to be a really good investment right now because it's just going up. And I see that Reddit is driving the price and this is going to be forever. I'm so fearful. And if you want to look at at other examples, go back to 2008 and look at Volkswagen AG and you'll see the same type of thing happened. It manifests itself always differently because of technology. In other words, Reddit is different than it was now as opposed to then. But the question is at the end of the day is can the company sustain this kind of value? Is there going to be pressure to keep the price where it is? So as a financial person, I just get so worried when people write to me and say, explain to me gamma squeeze and how can I get in on that? And I'm like, first of all, that's not how any of this works. That's not how this works at all. You can't so so gamma, gamma squeeze sounds like a fighting move that the Incredible Hulk would do. <laughs> so, so let me see if I got this. This is going to be my pop quiz moment. Okay, so go ahead. The stock market has a function in society, right? And, and and one of the things that the stock market does, it's not just a trading market. It's a way that the 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 financial value and worth of a company is communicated to the public. Sure. And so so when a company's stock goes up, that is implicitly telling the public that this company's overall value in society is increasing, they're a good investment, that their companies and when a stock market goes down, it's the same the same thing in reverse. And so that that's the function of the stock market. So what short selling is, please correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm probably <laughs> wrong. But what short selling is, in, in a way, is people who are in the know, they look at a particular stock and they say, this stock is likely to decrease because I can see that the company is, is losing value. Right. It, it's, it's not doing well or whatever it is. They just took out a bunch of debt. Their CEO just left all these different factors that may drive the, the cost of a stock down, the reason it drives the stock down is because that signals to investors that the company is less stable and less likely to be profitable in the future. So what a short sell is, is a person who's in the know, they they borrow a stock from somebody. So we'll, let's use let's use concrete things. Okay. Let's say that um, I had a hundred, I don't know, a hundred microphones and you thought microphones were going to be less valuable in the future. Right. So you say to me, here, let's make a deal. You, you let me borrow your microphone 
And then I'm going to give you back the microphone in a hundred days. And I'm also going to, I'm going to pay you $10 to let me do this. Sure. So you take that, you sell the microphone at today's value. And then in a hundred days, you purchase back the microphone at a lower value, which means all of that difference is profit for you. Right. Then you give me back the microphone. And now I, I haven't really lost anything because I have the exact same thing I started with. But you've gained that money, and part of part of what the function of that is in society is that affects the stock value. It helps to helps to move the market in a way that more accurately, or at least when it's working the way it's supposed to, more accurately reflects the value of that company. Right. The problem, as I understand it, with what's going on now, is a bunch of people on Reddit identified this and understood it, and they said, "What we're going to do is right before this person sells back the stock to to make their short sale." What they're going to do, or buys back the stock, rather, what they're going to do is we're going to drive that price up by buying a bunch of our own stock, which signals to the market this company is doing really well, so the stock value goes up, so the people who are doing the short sales lose money. Right. The problem is that the market is going to equalize at some point. So all of these people who are buying Game stock, GameStop stock, like me, apparently, because I just invested our life savings in this, <laughs> I, I borrowed a bunch of money, too, so hopefully this all pays out. But what, what's going to happen is people who are looking at it now and going, wow, GameStop's really on the ascendancy. It's really getting better. I'm going to buy a bunch of this stock because it's going to keep going up. And then in a couple of weeks, I'm going to sell it. I'm going to make a profit. Some of those people, they're actually doing a short sell in reverse. That's what you just said. Right. They're saying, I'm going to buy it now when it's low and I'm going to I'm going to sell it when it's high. Some of those people are they're going to get the timing right and they're going to they're going right. to make some money. Correct. But a lot of these people who are not experts at this are going to lose a bunch of money because the market has been artificially inflated by these Reddit people who are trying to stick it to the people, the short, you know, the short sellers, the hedge fund people. Right. Am I even close? Yeah, that's, I think that's fair. Okay. My, my concern really is like you said at the end there, that there are right. people that maybe for even good reason have jumped into it at this point in time. And I'm so fearful that they're going to lose a bunch of money yeah. because they're thinking that these prices are here to stay or that somehow this is like a new revolution in pricing and it's just untenable. And so I'm just really, really uh, fearful about that kind of thing. And I love that people are interested in this all of a sudden, but uh, we want to get people, you know, have some sense of knowledge about how to appropriately allocate their finances and their savings. Right. And that that's all the stock market affords is it's another way. It's not even, I would parse out, and this is not a financial podcast. I would parse out though, the word invest versus savings. This is savings right. allocation on investment, but that's getting super nerdy. So yeah. you're right. But I'm just, there's been so much amazing attention about this. So I've had like so many conversations this week about what this stuff is. But again, the fact that anybody would ask me that that is not particularly financially minded or have an interest, like the words, short squeeze, gamma squeeze, delta hedging, those are all like really nuanced, nerdy terms yeah. in financial management. So I just love that people have just like, that's become part of like the normal vocabulary all of a sudden is to want to be interested in those things. So yeah. on the one hand, I love it. And on the second hand, I, or the other hand, I just really dislike it because I don't want anybody to get caught up in this. So yeah. all I'm saying is find somebody that you trust who can really help you navigate these kinds of conversations. Definitely ask the questions, definitely get more understanding, but be careful to get caught up in something like this because it tends to end very quickly and it tends to end very poorly. Yeah. Yeah. So so what you're saying is I should go and sell all of the GameStop stop stock that I just bought with our life savings, right? I should get yes. rid of that. I mean, it's it's at a high <laughs> now. It seems like it's in my opinion, it seems 
again, like this kind of price is not going to be uh, you know sustainable in the long run. And one last thing, I would also caution against a lot of all this extreme talk online, Facebook and Twitter, about some of these places that there's been all these kind of accusations leveled against them as being notorious or nefarious. Yeah. So for instance, for Robinhood, that's one of these applications that has really democratized or at least lowered the costs of investing and they stopped yeah. or halted trading in these stocks over this week. Here's the thing which most people don't understand or appreciate. And that is one, Finance and then finance regulation is super complicated. And second, right. that all these rules have a strange magnifying and cascading effect. So right. I think it's actually from the research I've done and tried to kind of decouple all of the little pieces and un kind of, I guess, to untie all the knots in this, that it's, I don't think it's that like, for instance, Stephen Cohen called up Robin Hood and said like, stop trading and all these things. It's actually far more complicated than that. Right. They have rules which they must comply with. And when one domino starts to fall, then it creates the snowball effect, which causes them to have to change their structure because they have requirements for things like liquidity and solvency, all these, again, nerdy financial concepts. So all I have to say, as somebody who has uh, tried to keep their finger on the pulse of what's going on here and has some sense of the financial implications of this kind of thing, and at least hopefully some degree of small understanding, that it's actually far less conspiratorial than I think any average person needs to think it is. Yeah. Yeah. The, the way I understand it is the stock market is supposed to, in some sense, reflect reality. Right, the, the value of stocks is supposed to reflect the actual value of a company. I know it's probably more. I'm sure it's more complicated than that. Sure, but a lot of times these companies like Robinhood or other investing companies, the financial regulations kick in at a certain level when something is going crazy in the stock market, where that no longer that no longer works, and it's designed to protect people who don't know what they're doing. From going, yeah, well, this GameStop is just doing awesome. I'm going to invest right now. It's it's designed to stop that and say, wait a second, GameStop's not doing awesome. So, something else is happening, and all of these people who think GameStop is going awesome, they're going to go. You're going to get really ripped off if they if we don't do something. And that that's there's all sorts of debates about regulation and the free market and the invisible right. hand and stuff that's way outside of my expertise that could be had and are being had and. I I love knowledge. I mean, obviously, like theology is my thing. I love, but I love knowledge. So this is interesting to me. But there's reasons why this stuff happens. There's reasons why. I mean, I, you're right. It's probably not some grand conspiracy that that some rich hedge fund manager called right. the CEO at Robinhood. It was like we're all going to lose a bunch of money, so I need you to break a million different laws and also probably bankrupt <laughs> your company because of public backlash. <laughs> Right. Do me a, do me a solid on that's probably not what happened. Right. Just like it's probably not the case that you know that two, 20 million doses of coronavirus vaccines disappeared because somebody somebody has a conspiracy going. That's probably not what's going on. Right. So yeah, I, I love I love that. I, I'm all about your denial today, Jesse. I, I it's funny because I I had no idea this was happening until I think it was like like Friday morning I woke up and all of a sudden GameStop is everything everywhere. And I'm like, wait right. a second, right. something is happening here. So it's a fascinating story. It's somewhat of a sordid tale, at least with like the influences that brought to that price. So I encourage right. anybody to take a look at it. What you're going to see is that the truth of the matter is 
the best metaphor for finance and the financial system system is plumbing. And that's a lot of all this is. So it's like when you get a clogged pipe somewhere, which kind of basically happened to Robin Hood, they have to go through all these means to kind of unclog it. And so that's essentially in a non like an unglorious way what happened. I'll close by saying that, you know, one of the best things I think that was ever said about this kind of situation happened long ago. And that was by Warren Buffett, who's like a famous investor. And he said, like, in the short term, the market is a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine. And so what we're seeing right now is, yeah, people got fired up about this stuff. They made lots of decisions. It's in vogue. And so people tend to kind of fall in line with that or tend to exhibit this herd behavior and go after it. I'm just worried, though, about when that shifts and what becomes popular tomorrow is not what was popular today, that there are people that got caught up in it and they're going to lose money. You know, you see these horror stories about, you know, children convincing their parents to take out second mortgages and put all the money into these stocks and thinking that, again, that somehow they're getting in on something that's going to allow them to make an extreme amount of wealth. And I would argue generally that the stock market is not for that purpose. It's really to allocate your savings and reduce risk and then provide you with a way to at least overcome inflation over the long term. But now I'm straying into really dangerous territory. This should all be understood as not investment advice. I'm compelled to say that. This is not investment advice, but really my thoughts, and I love to talk about this stuff. It is my industry, but alas, I digress. We really should get into our topic for this episode. Yeah. One last thought. This strikes me. There's an episode of The Office where The Office holds like this garage sale in the warehouse, and Dwight has this this thing where he thinks he's going to be able to, like, take the smallest thing and through bartering, he can, like, work his way up and get, like, the most expensive thing. So he starts off with, like, a half-used candle and he ends up with, like, a super nice telescope. And J- what Jim does is he concocts this story that makes it seem like this packet of beans he has is super, super valuable. And so at the end of the day, Dwight can't resist it. He he trades this super nice telescope for this packet of worthless beans because of the story that Jim told that convinces him that they're they're magic beans. And it strikes me that this is this thing going on with GameStop is kind of like that. I keep on saying Game Stock. GameStop <laughs> is kind of like that. Is that the actions of the redditors who are doing this have convinced the market? at least some people who are participating in the market have convinced them that this stock is magic and they're trading their really nice telescopes, which is the money that they're spending for it. And at the end of the day, they're probably going to be left with basically worthless beans because when they go back to sell it, it's not going to be worth what it was when they bought it. Maybe they'll get the timing right. Maybe they'll manage to sell it before the bubble bursts and all this stock goes back to the low end it was at that it probably should be at. But most people probably are not is my my understanding of the concern. I think that that's fair. That's really where my denial comes from. And it's important to remember that because this is like a human enterprise and it involves human judgment, you have all these participants expressing their opinions by committing funds to a certain thing, that what you have in here is a tremendous amount of sin. It's not just the sin of nefarious behavior, which certainly exists at times, but it's also the sin of being unable to discern things rightly because we are faulty in our reasoning. And so timing is a big issue always in the markets. In other words, you can be right and still get it wrong because the right thing at the wrong time in the market is to the wrong thing. So that actually led like a very famous English economist called John Maynard Keynes to say the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent, which is his way of saying you might be right, but it might take a very long time for people to realize 
that you are right and you could right. lose a ton of money yeah. while you wait for everybody to catch up to where you are. Yeah. So this is like, we're way out there now, but <laughs> way I out love it there though. now. I'm fine with it. Yeah. So let's get into the, the topic for this episode. And like I teased at the beginning, we have done, and I encourage people to go back and listen to a whole series where we talked about heresy, especially Christological heresies. We went through almost all of them, a lot of them, and we got yes. into the details, all the isms, especially in the early church, the first century, which they had to wrestle in trying to understand the identity of Christ. But the, really the focus of today's episode is instead to kind of zoom way out and to say, how do we categorically define heresy? Because the H-bomb gets dropped a lot. And so I think the question we ought to ask ourselves is, how do we discern what it is? And so let's start with a really, really basic definition. So you've got the opportunity in the elevator to give that pitch for somebody who says, what is heresy? Tony, what do you tell them? See, my elevator pitches, I stand in front of the door and I, I make them stay in the elevator <laughs> yeah, until I'm done. I, I figured that it might go this way. <laughs> so so heresy at its fundamental level is, and let, let's step outside of theology for a second, because yes, you can be a, a heretic in a variety of things. Heresy yes. is a term that is particularly prominent within uh, theological discussion, but you could be a heretic in, in a sense, in like a scientific circle. And so a heresy is a, a belief or a doctrine or some, some position that is held that places you outside of a given boundary of, of a body of knowledge. So, for example, if I was a microbiologist and I denied the theory of evolution, that would probably put me in the realm of heretic in reference to that body of knowledge. Because in order for that body of knowledge to function the way it does and to, to accomplish the goals it does, to constitute a group of people the way it does, there's a certain presuppositional premise that has to be held. Otherwise, you're just not part of that group anymore. If, um, if I say that I'm a Mandalorian fan, that I love the Mandalorian uh, show I don't know do Mandalorian fans have a name yet Mandos if I say I'm a Mando uh, actually the Mandalorian is a good example right the Mandalorian thinks that he is the the definition of what it means to be a Mandalorian right and one of his core tenets is that you never remove your mask in the presence of another living another spoiler living thing, alert right and so spoiler alert if if this is if you've not watched it and you want to then pause this go watch two seasons and come back. But he finds in the second season, these other Mandalorians that don't hold that view. And so there's two options, either they're heretics and they actually aren't Mandalorians or as he starts to learn. And, and this is part of his growth is, is that's actually not a core funk core definitional thing about what it means to be Mandalorian. So when we come to the Christian church, what we're talking about is the core essential doctrines, the, the tenets of the faith, that if you deny these things, you are not, you're not within the body of Christianity. You're not within the church. In terms of, um, you might be within the visible church, and actually, in order to be a heretic, we'll talk about this, you have to be within the visible church. A, a person who's not within the visible church who denies a tenet of the faith is not a heretic, right? right. Bart Ehrman is not a heretic because he doesn't claim to be a Christian. But... If you, didn't, if you claim to be a Christian or claim to be part of a group and you deny something that's definitional to that group, then you are not a part of that group by, by definition. Um, if, if we had a group of squares hanging out, like this, 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 not squares like boring people, 
but like squares like the shape. If there was a group of squares hanging out and a circle walks up and says, yeah, you know, I'm a square, although I don't have any angles. I don't have any, I don't have any straight lines, but I'm a square. Then of course you look at it, well, that's not a square. Like it's a circle. It's not a square. By definition, it's not a square. And that's what we're talking about when we identify something as a heresy. We're talking specifically about positions that are held, theology that's advocated, that a person holds knowing that it is not the actual teaching of the group, but nevertheless still holds that position. And that last part's important, and, and we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more, I think, as we go go into this a bit. Right. You weren't joking. You're definitely blocking somebody from getting out of that yeah, elevator. Yeah, you don't get you... out of that. My elevator pitch is as long as I want it to be. <laughs> That's I fair. deny the definition of elevator pitch. That's fair. At least uh, you define it that way. So here's here would be my elevator pitch. So there's error. And heresy is a type of error that is so serious that would deprive one of salvation. Yes. Yeah, that's better than my definition. That's my, well, it's just, it's succinct, but it's, I think it encapsulates everything that you just expanded on. To some extent, and this is what I, I think we should elaborate on, is there's something in heresy that is in its intent. And we, we have to provide or try to leverage some judgment against as we understand what the intent is. If there's somebody that's purposefully going against, I think everything that you described in terms of what, let's say like what is normative or centered would be orthodox. And yeah. so this is somebody that says, I know and I identify that I'm outside of orthodoxy and I'm okay with that. And so I'm promulgating still this idea that's outside of orthodoxy. Yeah. And one of the things that I think you said that's really important is you can't accidentally be a heretic. Heresy, and we'll, I want to look at the, the biblical words here. I'm not going to go into all the passages because the, the passages themselves are not super revealing for what our conversation is about. But the word heresy in the Bible and in classical Greek has to do with the word choice. It, it's a conscious decision that someone makes. And so as it gets applied to this and as it gets applied in the Bible, it's a person who knowingly separates themselves from the body of, of doctrine and knowingly separates themselves in terms of knowing, knows that this is the teaching, but nevertheless teaches something different. And so so Paul uses it in uh, 1 Corinthians to talk about the different sects that are going right. on, the different groups, that, that they're, they're choosing to separate themselves from each other in order to, to hold certain positions. Um, Peter talks about it as heresies that creep in. But the idea is that you, you can't, someone who, um, who thinks that this is what the church teaches and, um, and is just wrong about that. They're probably not a heretic. Probably. Um, it's not as simple as that. That sounds like a nice clear line that, that absolves people of responsibility, which isn't, isn't the case You're, We are all responsible for understanding and believing truth. Um, I mean, it, it, your de- denial actually ties into this really well is that knowing something and having a false view is a sin because it's, it's a fundamental denial of the truth. Now you may not know that it's a denial of the truth. You may not be trying to do that, but knowing a false thing, claiming that something is false, that's actually true is a sin. And heresy takes that another level where not only are you knowing you, are you knowing a false thing as though it were true, you're appropriating a false thing as though it were true, but you're doing that in opposition to the, the definitions and the statements of what it is that the scripture teaches that the church has, has somehow formally pronounced 
is true. So th this is a little bit of a bugaboo of mine. Uh, I get a little bit weirded out when I see Baptist pastors who, who not, not that I have anything about BAP, against Baptists, but Baptist polity, for example, you have only a local congregation. That's the extent of the authority kind of ring that a, a pastor has. And so you have them now, now looking outside of their ring of authority and making pronouncements about this person's a heretic, that person's a heretic. When in reality, according to good church Baptist church policy, the only people they should be able to make formal pronouncements acting in official capacity would be the people within their charge, the people within their congregation. So it's a little bit weird to me when that happens. But at the same time, because it's a formal pronouncement, it's something that the church as the church through the official the official appointees of the uh, of that body pronounces, it's also equally weird when individuals on the internet or not on the internet necessarily, but individuals out there see fit to declare this thing or that thing uh, a heresy or even more so this person or that person, a heretic. And those are different things as well that I think we need to parse out a little bit. Most of the time, as you know, it happens because somebody's saying, I disagree with this person. Right. We have different theological positions and I want to bring some kind of extreme judgment or representation of their position against them. I'm with you. And that's why I think I want to have this conversation at least was some of this is where we tend to drop the H-bomb because it seems like that's the way in which we assert our own positions that were correct. Right. But in my opinion of like the things I've seen online, really the heresy range is like 95th percentile. In other words, right. like it's the top 5% of things that are talked about in the sense that 95% of everything else is really mostly difference of opinion. Right. especially about open-handed matters, but oftentimes it's just plain error. And so I think a lot of times if you talk to somebody, let's say like you talk to a friend of yours and you think that they're in error about some theological position, you just say to them, listen, I want to talk about this. And also like, this is the way the church has historically understood this. Right. This is the way that I believe the scriptures say about it. I think for the most part, our common experience, that person might say, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Like right. I really just, I grew up this way. I read these books. I thought this particular thing, this is the way that I was prone to understand it. I had an experience that led me to believe that this was the right way to view it. And so we shouldn't leverage right away and just say, well, that is heretical. And that's right. why th when you say something is heretical, it's like a very serious allegation. In fact, there is in some way it's incumbent upon the person making the accusation to justify that that is in fact right. the case. Yeah. So the, my example, we, and again, we gave so many examples in that series, but by way of trying to provide some context, for what we're talking about, the seriousness of this, that is separation from Christ, that is an error that crosses into something that is heretical. I want to just read a couple of verses from Galatians five. Of course, unfortunately the church in Galatia is famous for being foolish and so Paul says to them in chapter five, in the second verse, he says, look, I love that it starts that way. Look, colon, look, I, Paul say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, right? You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That is a definition of heresy. Yeah. And we tend to elevate heresy to this place of like, well, every common misunderstanding or everything we don't, we don't like, I'm going to just slap that label on. We're actually doing a disservice to the truth, the orthodoxy, the doctrines of yeah. God. Yeah. And, and you know, heresy, right? So there's kind of that like base definition, 
based definition. Heresy is a is a conscious decision to depart from the 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 established body of knowledge of a given group. That that's like the base definition. When when you move into theology, then it's it's particularly uh, dis uh, disembarkment from the base level of knowledge that has to do with things pertaining to salvation, right? But then you add another layer within the Christian church. And, and because this, man, it's, it's like God is, is in control of everything. Going back to the church discipline issue, right? The church discipline issue is that the church is the one who manages, isn't the right term, but who, who maintains the boundaries, who maintains the, uh, the membership, not because the church as individual people has some sort of special spiritual power, but because the church is the appointed official, the, the, the church through her appointed ordained officers are the ones who have the authority to recognize and assess whether someone is or is not a part of the church. That's really important. Right. So th- that's that's why church discipline is a mark of the church. Just like um, I'm, a, I'm a member of the board of the Evangelical Theological Society regional chapter. We don't have a lot of specific membership requirements, but one of the requirements would be uh, that you have to affirm a certain position on scripture and you have to affirm a certain certain affirmation of the doctrine of the Trinity if you want to be a part of the Evangelical Theological Society. I could see a situation where, it wouldn't be me because I'm a regional person, but where, where the board, the appointed officials of the Evangelical Theological Society would be called upon to assess a person's statement and to make a decision whether or not their statement is in line with those requirements or not in line with those requirements. And the result, if the board said they are not in line with those requirements, is that person's membership would be revoked. This is something we understand in our daily life. We just we just get it. If I'm a part of a, a country club and one of the requirements is that I drive a certain car, if I am found to be driving a different car, then I'm no longer allowed to be a member. Like we understand those. We might think those those regulations are capricious or spurious. We might might think that the regulations are stupid, but the regulations are there. And it's the uh, the agents of that members that that organization who execute those requirements. The church functions the same way in that there are requirements for being part of the church and the church through her agents, through her officers are the ones who execute those requirements. And so the elders of the church execute requirements and heresy is one of those things where it's, it's those people acting in their official capacity. And that's important. Acting in their official capacity are the ones who execute the requirements. And so I don't have the authority uh, to declare someone a heretic. I don't, I don't. And you'll notice that I try very carefully when I'm talking about, and I'm going to drop some names, when I'm talking about someone like William Lane Craig, or when I'm talking about someone like Wayne Grudem or Bruce Ware or Mark Driscoll or t- whoever it is, I try very hard. I don't think I'm perfect at it, but I try very hard to not use the word heretic, even if I use the word heresy. So I can say that the teaching that William Lane Craig holds in reference to the incarnation of Christ is not substantially different than Apollinarianism, which the church recognizes heresy against the ecumenical faith. I can say that, but I, I do very, I try very hard not to say William Lane Craig is a heretic because I don't have the authority to say that. And where that comes in is that the church, if they want to declare someone to be a heretic, they have to assess their theology and some official body, like the officers of the church, needs to rule on that and make that statement. So in, in the history of the church, 
we have Origenism, the theology that was taught by Origen, was declared to be a heresy. Uh, I think it was either the second or third ecumenical council. might have been the fourth. But somewhere in the early councils, Origenism itself was declared to be a heresy. It wasn't until later uh, that Origen himself was declared in certain ways to be a heretic. And so the church has always made these distinctions between a particular teaching being heretical, right? So this is the baseline. If you hold A, B, and C propositions, that, that is a heretical position. Now, the second level is the church comes along and looks at a person's teaching or their doctrine and says, yes, this person and what they're saying matches that position. And so now we're declaring that person a heretic. That's something that I think we really need to look at because you're right. Individual Christians are very quick to call something a heresy. That in itself doesn't have the same destructive nature because what you're doing, you're saying this particular, this particular way of thinking or this particular belief is not in line with the salvific information, the, the necessary salvation issues. That doesn't necessarily mean this person who may or may not be holding this position is not saved. But when the church declares someone a heretic, what they're saying is the information, the knowledge, the position they hold, if truly held, puts them outside of salvation. And that person holds that. Therefore, that person is no longer saved. That's not something that I have the authority to say or you have the authority to say. Even if I was a pastor, I don't have the authority to say that unless I'm acting in my office as pastor. Um, so, so that's something I, I think this is a great topic because we're all way too quick, I think, to make those kinds of statements without realizing the gravity of what they actually mean. So in short, I think it might be helpful for our listeners to understand what you just said in terms of first the title or the designation of heresy is actually a formal title. There's like right. a mechanistic transformation or transition to that title that is granted by an official governing authority of which no single individual actually has. We tend to throw it around a little bit more loosely. So that's the first right. thing is that let's understand that when you use that, if you're going to try to appropriate it in a historical sense, you're doing so in a way where it has been granted in some kind of uh, mechanistic way in which there was like a rubric at which to apply it. And there was authority, which designated it. No one right. person has that. The second thing would be that in addition to that, we're talking about an error of such a great magnitude that it separates you from Jesus. Right. So if we start to pass that, if that's the, the paragon, or again, uh, as I always say, like let everything pass through that sieve. The question is how much actually comes out at the other end. My guess would be a lot less than we normally engage with. Yeah. And so it's both a formal title, which we may not have the, which we definitely don't have the authority to bestow. And secondly, that we may be making a mountain out of a molehill. That's the second thing. And then I would say like, lastly, based on what you just said, we're talking about, it's not an error that's committed by way of ignorance. It's an error that is volitional. It's somebody saying like, I understand that I stand juxtaposed or in defiance of the church. And I'm willing to take that position. I understand what I'm saying. And I am not willing to subject myself to any contrary evidence and revise my opinion of this understanding. So given those three things, I think that actually pairs down the definition of what is an error that is of the magnitude of heresy. And I, I hope that helps to provide people with some, like at least three things they can look for online, for instance, right. to help them discern which is which. Yeah. And, and here's a little uh, hint. Almost no one that you're calling a heretic online 
is actually a heretic in the technical sense of the term. Uh, every word has multiple range of meanings. I understand sometimes people say heretic just as an informal way to say this person holds a heretical teaching. I get it. I understand that. Right. But when you look at that guy on your Twitter feed or that dude in your Facebook group that that just they have a little bit of a different view and you think maybe it, it doesn't jive with the second council of you know Nicaea, whatever, like the, the first council of Nicaea or constant, whatever. When you look at that, when you say this person is a heretic, then you actually are usurping the power of the keys. You're, a, right. you're usurping the authority of the church. And I understand. I get it. I share your frustration at times, listener, that there are people who clearly are saying things that are outside of the bounds, not just of, of good, solid Christian theology or good, solid reform theology, but outside the bounds of Christianity itself. William Lane Craig is one of those people. Right. Gwen Grudem is one of those people. I, I sh, you know, I'm I'm the first person to go on. What was it? 16 and a half minutes without a breath tirade on the teaching, the the heretical teachings of Wayne Grudem. But that is a very different thing than saying Wayne Grudem is outside of the faith. Wayne right. Grudem is is not a Christian. Wayne Grudem is not saved. I don't know that I'm not in a position to assess his theology in that way. I'm not in a position to make that kind of statement. And so almost nobody on your Facebook feed or in your Facebook group or on your Twitter feed or, or in your church for that matter, or, or at your workplace and almost nobody that you're running into is in that situation. And one of the things that I think is frustrating, and this is a whole different kind of a discussion is that we don't have a lot of great mechanisms in Protestantism to make those determinations Sure, because, because of the way that our, our ecclesiology is set up, we don't have the same kinds of like, wide-scale, unified Christian bodies to make those kinds of determinations. But it does happen, right? You do have, um, at times you have like Presbyterian bodies, for example, or you might have like a, a Baptist association, like the Southern Baptist Convention or something like that. They could come together and make a statement that such and such a teaching is heretical and such and such a person, in fact, holds that position. And so that person is heretical. We just don't do it very often. And I think that's where some of this kind of cavalier use of this language comes from is just because the church broadly, and I actually think this is probably wise. I, I don't, this isn't a criticism of the church do, not doing it, but because the church doesn't do it very often, I think sometimes we feel like somebody's got to pay, somebody's got to do, somebody's got to take care of this. And that's where our pride gets involved. And we sort of take over that role that either we think the church refuses to do or is incapable of doing and we decide we're going to do it. And at the end of the day, what that does is it takes that disciplinary function of the church and it brings it into my hands as an individual. And that's a really, really, really dangerous place for us to be. It's funny, it, we, you know, when I was a Reformed pub admin, one of the things that we changed about the rules was that you were not you were not allowed to call someone a heretic or use the word heresy of a position that was had not been officially called heresy by some recognized body in the church. That, that was one of the rules. And, and it, it gets applied in different ways, and there's always a little bit of judgment involved in that. But what we would say when we had to go to someone and say, look, you can't call complementarianism a heresy. You just can't do it because, or egalitarianism a heresy. What we would say is, if you want to do that, you better bring your church statement with you. You better bring some sort of proclamation by the church because you don't have the authority of the keys. So you either need to bring a statement by someone who does have the power of the keys with you, or you need to just not say it. 
And, and I think that that's a good reminder for all of us, especially those people like me who exist in internet world still, who, who are still involved in social media in different ways, is that I don't have the power of the keys in my own person. Uh, I'm not in any sort of official capacity that does have the power of the keys. But even if I was, I don't have that as a person, as, as an individual. I only have the power of the keys insofar as I'm faithfully executing the office which God has ordained me to. And, and that is a very limited number of people. That's a very small subset of the Christian church who actually have that authority, far less than you would imagine if you just logged into Twitter for a couple hours. Right on. I think that's as good a place as any to help people spend some time thinking about what it means to be a heretic. That's really helpful. I hope, I mean, the thing is, we need to think about these categories and not just in this way where it brings about like a lot of overt judgment. I almost think that the worst place to begin either an in-person dialogue or an online one is to start with this idea of heresy. But let's just start with this idea of like somebody might be wrong and not even realize hardly that they're wrong. We've all been that person, haven't right. we? And as we grow older, we realize that we've been that person more often than we like, and we are still that people to some extent. So to give somebody the opportunity by the grace of God to gain a different perspective and different understanding is really in many ways what it means to love somebody who's close to you, especially yeah. if you have a turn of mind for theology. So I think I love that. Not I think I love that <laughs> we have so many brothers and sisters who are on this journey with us, who are trying to understand what it means to have fidelity to the scriptures, to follow in obedience closely to the Lord Jesus Christ, that the word became flesh, that the word matters, that when we proclaim the word, those are words that we're using it in, those words ought to be particular, and yet we're always refining the way in which we speak so that we're gaining greater and greater precision. So to that end, as we end, I want to thank two people. And that is, we've had two additional new additions this week to those who are supporting the uh, Reformed Brotherhood podcast. And that is, I want to thank personally Scuba Steve, (laughs) an amazing, (laughs) amazing name. So thank you, Brother Scuba Steve. And uh, as well, Aliana, who I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Aliana also, those who have given through Patreon this week, who have stood up and said, we want to be part of what's going on with the Reformed Brotherhood. Listen, the bottom line is, we love all of our listeners and so many of them of them reach out to us and say like we're praying they leave voicemails we appreciate that some of them are able to give because of the way that God has blessed them we're so thankful so if again we always say this but if you're among that group that says like we'd like to be able to show support by giving a nominal amount we so appreciate that and you can go of course to reformbrotherhood.com in the upper right hand corner Click on the link that says join the brotherhood. And one of the options there is an option to give toward the podcast. I'm so grateful for yeah. those who are able to give. But more than that, I'm so grateful for everybody who gives a listen and is hopefully taking the conversations we have and pulling them into and pushing them out into their conversations with their own loved ones. Yeah. I feel like I need to get uh, the distilling theology guys involved so I can understand how to put those air horn noises in. <laughs> so when you say we've got two new donors, it's like, wah, wah. I love that sound. That Maybe has I to should have just make it with my mouth like that every time. Just wah, do it. Just do it. Actually, that's a really, like if you had done that, I would have known exactly, like if we were in some kind of game of like <laughs> musical charades, I would have absolutely understood what you were going for there. That has to have a name. The Germans have a name for that for sure. Sure, it's probably like Air Horgenschlein. <laughs> Hergenschnichten. 
that was actually pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have like a pigeon understanding of theological German so I can make up words. Yeah. Isn't that basically how German works anyways, though? You can just like shove words together. I think honestly, I think so. I don't really know. I'm sure like cut to all of our German listeners listeners? offended right now that we have totally butchered their beautiful language. Didn't they used to do like a German voice on the reform podcast? It was like a whiny German voice. Yes, it was. I'll have to get in touch with Tanner and have him call and do a whiny German voice. Yes, it well, it was. Yes. Like English in a very whiny German accent. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not even going to attempt that. That seems like really <laughs> dangerous ground to stand on. That's how you end up being a sound clip. Just like when I, when I, all the times that I said Wayne Grudem is a heretic in saying I shouldn't say that, that's going to make its way out in there of just me repeatedly saying Listen, Wayne Grudem's a heretic. Listen, we're always growing, right? Yeah. Yep. That's true. Th- this is how we do. That's part of what we do. So please, I, I don't think we've given the voicemail number in quite some time. We are kind of... I have a dearth of, I would say, short question oriented voicemails. So if you want to leave us a voicemail with a question or a comment or an observation about Tony's German, the number to do that is <laughs> 607, I almost said 603, 607-444-2767. Give us a call. Leave yes. a voicemail. So until next time, Tony, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.